There are many strategies. Well, Steve is here, so we can get started. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Chapman. Good morning, Tony. Is Dr. Boyle joining us? Okay. Well, welcome to uh, Pediatric Grand Rounds for March 4th, 2015. Spring is coming, believe it or not. So they say. So and this is also um, our special, uh, special occasion. Uh, it is the Colin C. Stewart Memorial Lecture in Pediatrics in addition to our Pediatric Grand Rounds. And as we have every year now for the past three years, we welcome the Stewart family in the second row and thank them for their generous support of the, the lectureship in honor of Dr. Stewart. So thank you. We are continuing our tradition in general pediatrics following Drs. Mark Schuster and Dr. Ken Ginsberg in the past two years as our general pediatricians. This is a, a highlight, one of our few named lectureships for general pediatrics. And just to remind you, uh, Colin Stewart was born in Philadelphia in 1902. His father, also Colin, was a physician and moved his family to Hanover in 1904 when he joined the physiology department at Dartmouth Medical School. A young Colin Han attended the Hanover schools, graduating from Hanover High School uh, as, as, as the Dr. Chapman, as I've mentioned each year. He then went on to Dartmouth and graduated magna cum laude and Phi Beta, Phi Beta Kappa. Attended Dartmouth Medical School for the two-year program at the time, completed his medical degree at University of Pennsylvania in 1926. After two years of internship at Philadelphia General Hospital, he became a fellow in pediatrics at the Mayo Clinic and moved to Han came back home to Hanover in 1931 as the first pediatrician in the newly formed Hitchcock Clinic and faculty at Dartmouth Medical School. He practiced here for 30 years until dying of what all reports describe as a rapid illness of several weeks on December 31st, 1961. He was the first school physician for the Hanover Grade School and Hanover High School. He rose to the rank of professor of pediatrics. He was a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics, New England Pediatric Society, and the founding member of the New Hampshire Pediatric Society active in many civic and medical activities throughout the state with six children. Three sons went to Dartmouth. Three daughters were not afforded the privilege at the time. One of his sons, Andrew, followed him into pediatrics and was a resident here from 1961 to 1963. At his death, the Hanover Gazette said of Dr. Stewart, he was a skilled, sympathetic, and trusted doctor to whom nearly every family in the community turned at one time or another when children were ill. And a colleague said, night or day, at the office or at home, on call or not, he was never too busy or too rushed to take the extra time needed to solve the problem, whether seemingly simple or hopelessly complicated. He created a tradition of patient care and teaching, which we continue today. So we are thrilled that our, our current um, Stuart Lecturer is here with us this morning. Dr. Perry Class arrived at 2 o'clock in the morning at the Hanover Inn after <laughs> travel difficulties, including a ride from Manchester. Original travel plans would have landed her in Lebanon safely yesterday afternoon or evening. But uh, thankfully, 
uh, a New Englander at heart, uh, Dr. Classroom, persevered. Some of you may know Dr. Classroom writing in the New York Times and other venues. Uh, she is a professor of pediatrics and journalism at New York University uh, and the national medical director of Reach Out and Read, uh, having spent a significant portion of her professional career developing and leading that program. She is a graduate of both uh, undergraduate and medical school at Harvard with uh, graduate studies in zoology at Berkeley. She did her residency in pediatrics at Boston Children's Hospital. And um, as, as with our speaker last year, spent a significant chunk at Boston University Medical Center, Boston Medical Center, uh, before moving on to New York. We are pleased that uh, she crossed paths with Kathy Shubkin, who invited her uh, at Boston Medical Center, as, as did Linda Grant, who was here last week. And, um, and with that, I am very pleased to welcome Dr. Perry Class as our 2015 Stewart Lecturer. Well, thank you so much. I am, in every sense, really pleased to be here. Um, honored to be here. I thank the Stewart family and um, recognize this tradition of honoring primary care pediatrics and the power of that primary care relationship, which is kind of behind what I'm going to talk about. It's the, the reach, I'm going to talk about literacy promotion and reach out and read and where it is now and where it's going, but I'll say at the beginning, um, in honor of Dr. Stewart, and in truth, and I'll say it again, this entire idea that we can do something around books and reading and language and literacy at the already crowded pediatric visit is based on the the strength and the importance of the relationship that primary care pediatricians, physicians, primary care providers build with patients and families starting very early, starting at birth. Um, so I have no commercial relationships to disclose, and will not discuss investigative or off-label use of products or devices, except perhaps board books. Um, and I'm going to talk about books and the brain. And I'm going to start by reminding you of what some of the messages are that we evoke when we talk to parents of very young children about books and reading. And there are messages that are familiar to all of us from different sides of working with families, that you're your baby's first and most important teacher, that when you talk to your baby and sing to your baby and read to your baby, you're teaching language and communication, but you're also teaching a very important lesson about the world and the way the world responds to a baby's requests and questions and needs, even before that baby has words to ask those questions and express those needs. And that books and reading aloud and language and singing all can start when a baby's very young and do so much. Establish routines and structures, and those routines and structures help cushion your child from all the different stresses of growing up, even sometimes in difficult circumstances, and that your child, your baby especially, is going to love the books because your baby loves you and your voice, and that all of this happens naturally with children too young to speak, but has the power to shape the child's ability to learn later on when the child gets to school. And, you know, 
You can see that all in the interactions of parents and children around books. The messages for us as clinicians are related. We want to foster those positive parent-child interactions that we, that we believe promote healthy development and enhance the language environment that our patients are growing up in. And we want to reduce the disparities. We want all the children to grow up with the best possible start. As is reflected in language and in development and in school readiness, we want to help with those healthy routines and the supportive relationships which protect children when they're stressed. And we want to do this by partnering with the parents who are there in the home taking care of the children. I will very quickly review some basic principles of early brain and child development, starting with the perfectly true but somehow um, grandiose statement that child development is the foundation of everything. Without child development, well, that's why we're the most important and most deferred to people in the world, right? Without child development, there's no community development, there's no economic potential. That's why they look to us to solve all of that. And that brains are built slowly over time with many different experiences and much repetition, but that we know, especially around language, that there are neurobiologic windows of opportunity, periods of really astonishing learning and potential. And we also know that brain development is a complex process, and it reflects the genetic background and the neurobiology and the culture and the, the child's early experiences. We know that socioeconomic circumstances have an impact and that disparities begin very early. And we know that brains develop in a relational way that brains develop through interaction, through the attachments that children form, and again, as I say, through the way that the world responds to the child. And we know that things can damage that developing brain, adverse experiences, various kinds of stress, and that those effects can be lifelong, as can be the power of the good experiences which help the child's brain develop and grow, and that those interactions, that back and forth, the, what we now, because I guess a lot of people play tennis, call the serve and return interactions in which the child does something and the world responds to the child. Children learn by contingency. Children learn because of the responses that they elicit and don't elicit. And the clearest examples that I've heard from that actually come from some of the people who study birdsong which is often used as a model for how children learn to speak, right? Songbirds are genetically, biologically designed to sing. The architecture is all there, both in terms of what you need to create the sound and what you need in your brain to learn a song. But the song that you learn as a songbird reflects the family in which you grow up. And so there's a lot of really interesting um, work on songbirds doing things like moving cross-fostering from one family to another that you can't so easily do with humans. And the under sometimes I know, but um, but a lot of what we understand about how the interaction of those neurobiologic windows of opportunity and what is around you and what is program programmed in genetically comes from people who study songbirds. One of whom once said to me, "Think of a baby babbling the way you think." of a, a baby's furrowed brow. It's a signal. I'm paying attention. Teach me something. So it's not just that you stimulate babies, stimulate babies, stimulate babies. It's that when the baby babbles and you respond,
fund, the baby is signaling, I'm learning, now teach me something. And you can show that babies learn better in the quick window after they babble than when they're just sitting there looking at the world. The babble is something that's sent out. It's the serve, and it's a question of how and in what way and how um, reliably the world returns information and attention. I'm just going to talk a little bit about language development and the disparities. Um, I'm sure everyone's familiar with the Hart and Risley study done in Kansas City in which you had people in homes recording the number of words that children heard um, while those children were growing up. And the results which showed that the number of verbal interactions, the number of words that children heard by as they grew correlated very directly with socioeconomic status of the families. And you had three groups of families, a group of professional families, um, a group of working class families, and a group of families on, on, on government assistance. And the cumulative number of words that the children had heard by age three, there was a 30 million word gap between the children growing up in poverty and the children growing up in the more affluent families. And there was a correlation, which we're all familiar with, but which is still hard to see and think about, in the disparities in language and vocabulary. The children who were growing up in poverty, you could see differences, certainly by 18 months, in the number of words that they spoke in their vocabularies. And what's really depressing about this graph is that the disparities widen and widen as those children go through school. So you can see the disparities early, but as the children learn and grow and approach school entry, the socioeconomic disparities in their vocabularies grew more and more pronounced. And there was also a correlation, um, there was a correlation between the language that the children had at three years and the number of words that they heard, the quantity of their exposure, but there was also, not surprisingly, a strong correlation with the quality of the language that they heard. And part of the disparity was that the children who were growing up in more affluent circumstances, they heard more words, but they also heard a higher proportion of language that was explanatory, that was answering, that was enlarging on their questions, that was not disciplinary, that was not negative. The world was answering them, but it was also asking them questions. We also recently um, saw data to suggest by Anne Fernald um, at Stanford that you can measure differences not just in vocabulary, but in the speed with which children's brains process language as early as 18 months. And so this involved showing children pictures that they already knew. You had identified words that the child already understood, car. And you showed the child two pictures, and you said, where's the car? And you looked to see how quickly the child found the car, looked at the car. How quickly could the child's brain process a familiar word? And there were significant disparities, not only in vocabulary, but in the speed with which the children's brain processed those familiar words present by 18 months. And by 24 months, there was a six-month gap such that the children who were growing up in poverty at 24 months were processing language, words that they knew 
only as quickly as the affluent children who were six months younger. The wealthier family, 18-month-olds, were processing language as well or as quickly as the poorer 24-month-old. Um, there was a six-month gap in how quickly they could process. This was a big news when it happened. Uh, uh, um, it was, you know, the newspapers picked it up. Language gap study bolsters a push for pre-K. These are... Uh, that's this, this is the graph which shows you in the middle where the um, black circles, filled in circles, overlap the, um, just the outline circles. That shows you the overlap between the lower SES 24-month-olds and the higher SES 18-month-olds crossing in the middle where six months difference in growth and development is canceled out here by the socioeconomic differences. And again, the study repeated um, the, the impact on vocabulary score at 18 months that higher SES children were significantly ahead of lower SES children. So what is it that hurts brain development? Oh, you know, a lot of things can hurt brain development. Trauma and disease, environmental exposures, the lack of stimulation, uh, many different adverse events, and what we have come to describe as toxic stress. And of course, this is the obligatory moment in which as a lecturer I say, so there are three levels of stress. There's positive stress, like I'm giving a talk, so I'm stressed, you know, my heart rate is up and I'm trying not to, you know, do anything stupid. But that's positive. That's helping me grow and develop. Then there's tolerable stress, which might be the process of getting here last night. Um, serious temporary stress responses, but at least I could, you know, call Kathy Shubkin on my cell phone and she could say, you'll be fine, it's okay, it's New England. Um, and what we really worry about, though, is toxic stress, is the prolonged activation of the stress response system. Children who are growing up in circumstances where you are constantly aware of stress and danger and threat, and where there are not enough supportive relationships around you, not enough buffering, not enough protection, so that your stress response system can take a break and feel that the world is not a constant threat. What we now think is that that kind of prolonged activation, that kind of toxic stress is associated with persistent effects on the nervous system, on the neuroendocrine system, on the developing brain, and that if you are a child growing up in circumstances where the adults around you, because of the stress that's on them, because of the kinds of childhoods that they had, because of their own very difficult circumstances, cannot buffer you, cannot keep you protected, then stress which might be tolerable levels with more adult buffering becomes toxic. And that's what we worry so much about for children who are growing up in difficult circumstances, often with parents who themselves grew up in those difficult circumstances and who, for all that they would like to protect, they would like to buffer, they would like to shelter, are under tremendous stress themselves and grew up without that as a model. We think that's part of what results in transmitting poverty and deprivation from one generation to another. And what we hope is that if we as a society, as providers, as communities, think about investing early. We can change those trajectories because we have these early developmental windows. It's everybody 
in pediatrics knows this. Prevention, if you can possibly go that route, is the route to go, right? Trying to create conditions for healthy development is so much more effective and so much less expensive than trying to address problems later on. And you start as early as possible, and the way to help young children as early as possible is often to support their parents and help them do what they want to do, which is take really good care of those young children. So books, back to books, since that's my thing. Um, books offer opportunities for high-quality, language-rich parent-child interactions. In, in other words, all of us, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of education, if you come into our homes and videotape us with our young children, which I, for example, would never have allowed you to do, but yeah. you know, there are people who would. We use more words with our young children when there's a book in the interaction. We use different words. We use more complex syntax when we're reading books. We, the children here, they grow up in a, an enriched language soup, if you will, or an enriched language bath. Um, they offer all kinds of opportunities for serve and return, everything from the child picking the book and helping you get through it to pointing at the pictures and asking questions. They dictate a certain amount of parent-child FaceTime, lap time. You don't have to say you need lap time if you're saying, read a story. Um, they help build routines and bedtime rituals, which children will then require that parents keep, um, <laughs> holding over their parents' head the prospect of, well, I just won't go to bed then. Um, they, they dictate, again, a certain amount of exposure to print, to letters on the page, to story structure and sequence. They yield positive associations with books and stories. Children understand very early that books are associated with a feeling of safety, with a parent's voice, with um, pleasure and information, and all of that contributes in a whole long list of ways to school readiness, but also preschool readiness, which I think is important. You've got a room full. Kindergarten teachers will tell you that on day one of kindergarten, you can tell right away which children have never seen a book, held a book, been read to. It's also true on the first day of preschool. There's a difference between um, a three-year-old who looks at the book corner and, see, and understands that if I take one of these and give it to an adult, they can get the story off the page and tell it to me. Um, so when you study what Reading Aloud does in, in the preschool years, you see um, the preschool home environment Reading Aloud affects, directly affects reading comprehension um, as far into school as third grade. That is to say, in spite of everything that the school is doing to try to level the playing field and um, bring children, help children catch up. After three years in school, you stop seeing it so much as an impact on word decoding skills, but you still see effects on reading comprehension. Even as children grow up beyond those early years, you still see the difference in the children who were read to in the preschool years in terms of reading comprehension. So, okay, I'm going to say a word about Reach Out and Read. Actually, I'm going to say many words about Reach Out and Read, and I'm going to say them in, in sequence, and I'm going to say them in syntax, and you're going to be so impressed. Um, I know you have a robust Reach Out and Read program here, and I know that much of what I say will probably be familiar, and I'm not, I don't mean to kind of do Reach Out and Read 101. I want to acknowledge all the people who participate in Reach Out and Read here and know this. I'm going to review it, and I'm going to talk fast. Um, 
the program has been around for a long time. I, I used to have a sly, uh, when I first got involved with it, I was pregnant with my youngest child, and I used to have a slide of him as an adorable um, little baby, and then a slide of him towering over me um, as a large adolescent um, in full Red Sox gear. And then I somehow began to feel that the metaphor was to suggest and it grew from an adorable, manageable little program into a large, hairy... <laughs> so I took that slide out. Um, but from the beginning, it's been a program that was developed to fit into busy clinical practices and to recognize the reality of what we do in primary care, not to make impossible demands either on the, um, the clinicians or the staff. So it's been a program that worked in the waiting room, that created, we create literacy-rich waiting rooms, if possible, with volunteers to read to children with displays, with gently used books. We acknowledge the reality of waiting room time um, and, and work with it. Um, we do anticipatory guidance in the visit about the importance of reading aloud um, and about how to read aloud with children of different ages. And you'll notice I say starting at birth. We're trying really hard now in Reach Out and Read to acknowledge that all of these conversations all of this advice should be part of what we're doing from birth. The way our program has traditionally worked is that we've given the first book at six months. And there are many reasons, which I can talk about you know, later on, if you're interested why we waited till six months to give that first book, partly just that we wanted the child to be able to grasp it. And we wanted, we were looking for an optimal moment and board books are expensive. Um, we're actually looking now for the possibility of some funding for earlier books, but the message needs to start at birth. The message about talking and reading and singing and the fact that your baby can understand what's going on and is responding to your, your voice long before that baby can talk. And then the third part of the program, in the setting of that conversation and that advice, is a beautiful new developmentally appropriate book. Every well visit from six months to five years, which is 10 books by kindergarten. So last summer, the American Academy of Pediatrics actually put out a policy statement which for the first time said the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that pediatric providers promote early literacy development as an important evidence-based intervention at health supervision visits for children beginning in infancy and continuing at least until the age of school entry. And I hope, I hope this rings in your ears like the, like, you know, the revolution is here. I mean, it certainly, it certainly did, I think, for many of us. Um, and again, in the summer of 2014, um, recommended that pediatricians advise all parents starting at birth about the importance of books and reading, counsel parents about developmentally appropriate reading activities, provide books for high-risk and low-income children, support this with posters and information materials, and partner with other child advocates to try to influence what's going on in early childhood around the country. So this was kind of big news. This is um, my colleague in New York, Leora Mogilner at Mount Sinai on the front page of the New York Times, giving a book to one of her patients and talking about it with the child's mother. And the idea of the question of how we help people who are doing primary care everywhere make this practice change and implement this policy statement 
using the books in the visit, using them as props or prompts to help foster those routines in the home and the kind of responsive parenting that I've been talking about, trying to help people work it into their practice. This, I'll say, I says, this is not supposed to be like giving a bigger, better sticker. Right? This is supposed to be part of what we do in the visit. This is supposed to influence, it's supposed to, if it works, it makes us better primary care providers because it makes us more effective in the conversations that we already think are most important to have with our families. Um, the American Academy of Pediatrics developed a toolkit with online materials for parents and tips for pediatric professionals and partnered with Reach Out and Read with Too Small to Fit. And basically in this toolkit, the essential messages were advice around how to familiarize yourself with the evidence on the importance of reading, talking, and playing with young children, how to implement a literacy promotion program in your practice. So I think the world has changed um, over the last couple of decades not just because Reach Out and Read is wonderful, which of course it is, but because we've come to understand all the ways in which talking about books and literacy and learning and talking in the primary care vis visit helps us get at those early brain issues, helps us help parents in very concrete ways do the things that we have come to believe matter most in terms of child development in the early years. Um, so this is I've pretty much said. I was just saying, promoting those relationships is our critical strategy for nurturing healthy development, and literacy promotion is a way to make that strategy real in the exam room, starting with very young children who fortunately are cooperative. They actually, in the various ways that they have, make it clear that they think this is a good idea. So when I do training, what we talk about is bring the book in early, have it when you come into the room, go into the room with a stethoscope in one hand and a book in the other, use the book to see what the child is up to, what the child can do, use the book when it's time to talk about sleep behavior and bedtime, because you know it'll be time to talk about sleep behavior and bedtime. You never get out of a toddler visit without talking about this. Use the book when it's time to talk about language development and is, is he going to be ready for preschool and what are you worried Use the book as a way for the child to show you what, what she can do. Use the book as a way to see how the parent and child connect. Tie it to the other primary care topics. Have the book with you. Um, this is all that I've said. Use it to talk about screen time. Use it to talk about routines. If possible, have it start in the waiting room where you can have volunteer readers and you can have displays and you can have gently used books and where parents who have maybe not been read to themselves can hear somebody reading a story, see how their children react. This is, this is my waiting room at Bellevue Hospital, which is where, my, where I, my clinical practice is now. It's the oldest public hospital in the United States. It's, it's an amazing place to work. It has phenomenal, dedicated people. Our waiting times are really bad, okay? I say this with love. People come from all over New York. They come by public transportation. We have a really loyal client base. Um, they show up whenever, you know, you, you're going to take two subways and a bus with three small children and a random cousin you happen to be taking care of. You're going to get there when you get there. Um, people wait a long time in our waiting room, and the Reach Out and Read program has totally transformed it. These blue mats, which are Jayco approved, 
approved. Um, our, our, our families, a lot of our families are, are Spanish-speaking, and um, the mats are sometimes called the escuelitas, the little schools. You, if you were hanging from the ceiling, you would see families coming out of our elevators, and you would see the children, as they come out of the elevators, break away and head for the blue mats, um, where, where our volunteers are. It's a, it's a busy waiting room, and um, fortunately, we have a large community of medical students and pre-med students to draw on, as well as community volunteers, and it changes everything. These are some other waiting rooms that are a little less crowded. and. Um, <laughs> But our part in the exam room is really the heart of it. And this comes back to what I was saying about how this is built on that primary care relationship. It's our chance to deliver many of the messages that we really want to deliver and to use the book as a tool to deliver the message, but also as a tool that the parent can take home and carry out in a very specific, concrete way later that day the advice that we're giving. So starting early, that reading aloud and talking, that all of this matters before a child can talk, that your baby will love books because your baby loves you, your voice, does not want the world's expert on early literacy to walk into the room and read to him, right? He has stranger anxiety, he's nine months old, he'll scream. No, wants you, your voice, your attention, your time, and this really has to be fun. And we have to, when, we, when I say that, we have to keep in mind that some of the families that we're working with, the book is not immediately a positive object to the parent, does not necessarily have good associations, or may not even, the board book may not even be a familiar thing. Um, oh, I'm going backwards. Often happens. Um, so when we talk about anticipatory guidance, you want to do it with the book in your hand, and it, want, it should be a message about the power and the influence of the parent's voice. And we have to help parents understand what's developmentally appropriate, because this isn't immediately obvious. It's, that's not just a question of parental education. If you, you know, walk in and, and if, you do, if you walk in and ask a group of really smart medical students, you know, pick out a book for a six-month-old, pick out a book for a two-year-old, the one who either has a child or has a lot of younger siblings is going to have no trouble doing it, but it's otherwise not ab absolutely obvious. How do you enjoy a book with a six-month-old? Six-month-old's going to put it in his mouth, that's fine. Help parents understand that that's not a bad thing, that that's the normal thing, that that's how babies explore the world. Twelve-month-olds are going to point at pictures with one finger instead of just slapping the book. That's a big step. Help people see that 18-month-olds um, with the pincer grasp um, and a little more organization will systematically turn the pages. Two-year-olds won't sit still for a whole story. This is not a bad sign. You don't have to medicate that, right? It's, this, is, this, is, this is good, right? But, but help, people, help, people, help people so that they don't feel their children are failing a test or that they're failing a test. Help them enjoy it together in a, in a good way. If, I mean, it's, I think, important to remember that if you have only one book in the house, that book is the Bible, right? And that book is probably treated with tremendous respect, and it's on a shelf, and you wash your hands before you take it down. And so, and you, you certainly don't give it to the two-year-old to handle. So that there are people for whom giving that board book for the child to, to chew may look wrong or disrespectful in a lot of ways. And it's important to sort of not, again, it's, it's really important not to give that board book, have the baby put it in his mouth and have the parent feel the need to apologize. 
right? I'm so sorry, he's not old enough yet. You have to, you have to do it in a way that everybody can feel it's a triumph when the baby starts to chew the book. Um, I think this may actually be from Dorchester House. Um, so we give a new book starting at least at um, six months, and as I say, we have ambitions to try doing it earlier. That's ten books by kindergarten. This is... I just have to, to bring this in just to say we really do know what primary care settings are like. This is my clinic at Bellevue. We decided it would be a good, we were doing the quality improvement project. We decided if we could have a cabinet that was right where the residents walk when they bring their patients in with books, it would help. It took six months and perhaps nine high-level meetings to get that cabinet wedged in between those two filing cabinets. And we had to promise that we would not block that bulletin board, which and you cannot see, but on that bulletin board there is a calendar that is several years out of date and was several years out of date when we were promising not to block it. But you have to, you, you need to bring the book in early. And this is, this is our cabinet um, that we're so proud of. And you start with the board books that the baby can chew and we use all of the books the children should grow up with, the books that are wonderful and proven to draw and attract children, and we do a lot with goodnight books because parents are very drawn to them too. And as I say, part of what, what, what I'm doing now and thinking about and talking with people about is how to start this at birth. Right from birth, your baby knows your voice and wants to hear you singing and talking and reading, wants to watch your face, that it can be part of how you stay connected with your older children when you're holding the baby or nursing the baby. You can, if you're reading a book, both the older child will be listening, but the baby's listening too. And to talk right from birth about how to build words and songs and stories into a baby's day. <clears throat> And, you know, we know we talk about how to choose the right books of board pages and familiar objects for babies. I'm going to show you a, a, just a 90 seconds or less of a couple of our, our videotapes. This is the six-month visit. We try to coordinate with the Bright Futures guidelines. Six-month visit. Baby's going to be socially interactive with the parent. Um, is going to be doing that um, mostly vowel sound babbling and is mostly using oral exploration. All right, now I, I'm hitting this and it's not advancing. It worked fine. I can also just try this. Hold on. Should I try going backwards? Oh, you did it. I'm so impressed. Thank you.
wonderful. So, have you been reading with him? Yes, I sit down and read with him. Um, he again, he eats the books, mm -hmm. and I see that he um, he sits he sits for a little while, mm -hmm. and then he cries, and mm -hmm. I have to play something else. So again, I'm going to show you the whole. Th if we were doing the training, I would you would watch the whole two minutes, and I would say, what did you see developmentally in the child? What did the primary, what, you know, what, what what did the doctor do, and what else could she have done, and how what did you see about the child's development? But we'll we'll go past that and just sort of say the the overall messages for parents of infants is that they're going to explore the books with their hands and their mouths, and that you want to point. You don't want to sit the baby down and say, okay, we're going to you know here's the longest book I can find we're going to you know chapter one chapter a night and by the by the time you're two we'll be through no you want you want to point and say what's this where's the baby where's the baby's nose where's your nose where's the baby's belly button and you want to Go back and forth, starting even very early, and you don't want to worry about starting at the beginning and reading to the end. And as with so many of the other things that we talk about, you want to be alert to the baby's cues. When it's not the right moment, you don't want to do it. When the baby wants more, you want to do more. And again, the book's a great tool in the exam room to try to teach some, some of those ideas and get them across and model them. And again, infants are very interested the books are colorful, and they want to be part of it. And of course, six months, if you, if you want to predict what the six month is going to do, if you want to say, okay, let's see whether she can do this, they're supposed to put it right in their mouths, six-month-olds are generally really cooperative about that. Um, and I'm going to show you again, um, you know, 90 seconds with a one-year-old and say, I know you know this, but just think about the difference in the way the six-month-old handles the book and explores the book and participates in the conversation and the way the one-year-old does. Hello. How are you guys? Oh, you're okay. Can you say okay? I think you're reading a lot. There's a book for you. Yeah. <laughs> you might remember that we went to give this out, and all of our wellness is important for kids to love to read. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, what do you see? Do you like to read? Yes. Yeah. Well, we just love that um, the kids get the books early. Yeah. We'd hope that you like to read with her. I don't know if there are any times a day that you might spend with her looking at a book or on the weekends. It's mainly on the weekends that I read to her. Her mother reads to her every day. And she's also with grandma sometimes too. Yeah, and she reads her so that, you know, when she so, you know, we talk about, look what you're covering. You're covering routines and who's taking care of her and what do you do at bedtime. But every once in a while, she's still exploring using her mouth and all of her new teeth. And, you know, she's still going to test things. You might see that she, you know, is doing so much better using her fingers to open the book. And she'll also be asking you to read the book and where before she might just look at it, if um, she likes the book, uh, <laughs> like a cat or an animal that she sees, she might be sort of getting your attention by hitting the book. But she's just really doing great with loving that book. Yes. <coughs> well, I don't read to the girls as much as the mother. I'm working. I know she does use that as a common tool just before bed. I love showing this to pediatric audiences, right? Mm. As a family, or even just you and Nyla, and 
reading the books together is a really good thing. <laughs> from everything else that you might do to be with them. Ivan, do you want to read the book? You can see you can see what you can do with this with this you know this this ninety seconds two minutes but say if you're talking to residents you're saying okay what can you tell me about this child neurodevelopmentally what can you tell me about you know that you saw here it's way more than just okay her fine motor strength is better and I think I saw a pincer I mean that's all true if I if I sewed the clips together six month old handling a book nine month old handling a book one year old I mean that would be fine motor stuff you'd see a lot but there's also a tremendous amount about and this child hasn't said any words yet but you can answer a lot of questions about what's going on neurodevelopmentally and also in terms of that parent-child relationship. Um, and so again, for children in that one to two-year-old age, the anticipatory guidance is about following the cues when the child points or speaks and letting the child com control the book and naming things. And it's especially, especially, especially about building routines and using the book, the father used the word, a calming tool, using the book as a way to help the child calm down or to distract the child or to make the transition. So it's there during the day and you both look to it and you both rely on it. And then my last 90 seconds is uh, the, the pre-kindergarten visit. How old are you? Good, five. How many is five? Show me five fingers. He was your preceptor? talking about what you can see about where that child is in terms of school readiness, in terms of relationships, in terms of speech and language, and encouraging parents to look for language and letters everywhere and make those connections between letters and sounds and tell you what's going to happen next in the story. If I went on with that clip, you'd see that child answer more complicated questions about what's happening in the story. So if we do this, one of the things which we have to face is that 
we, we do this in the exam room. We take videos of ourselves in the exam room. But the real power of the intervention is in what happens in the home. And that depends um, not just on the parent being willing, but the parents having the reading skills, understanding the importance, um, children having the developmental and behavioral skills to kind of be read to and take part in this and the home has to be sufficiently stable for routines and there have to be bedtimes for there to be bedtime rituals and so that for this to go on reverberating in the home we do have to think about all of those issues and what the home is like that the child is, is, is growing up in. I say a word about the evidence. There are now 14 published studies in the peer-reviewed literature to show that if we do this in primary care, we can affect parents' attitudes. They will be more likely in answer to open-ended questions to name books and reading as one of their favorite activities or one of their child's favorite activities when you just say, what are his favorite things to do? Parents will be more likely to bring up books and reading. Children will develop different language skills, at least in the at-risk populations where we've studied this. Here's one of the studies that has looked at parent practices, the likelihood that parents are reading three or more days a week. This was a um, randomized controlled prospective study, 200 families, 100 getting the reach out and read intervention, another 100 getting standard primary care. And after a year or so in the intervention, this is the percentage of parents reading aloud three or more days a week, and you can see that it is more than double in the group who are getting the reach out and read intervention. Um, and this is one of the studies on childhood language, looking at preschoolers using voc picture vocabulary tests to see what words they recognize what words they know and what words they say. And in the preschool years, there was a six-month developmental gap in receptive language. The children getting reach out and read were six months ahead in the words that they knew, that they recognized, and three months ahead in the words that they said. And again, this is an inner-city, high-risk population. We know that the children who start school ready to read and learn to read on schedule have a tremendous advantage because we know that early reading problems persist as the children go through school and it's been tracked into fourth grade, into ninth grade, into twelfth grade. Many of the children who struggle with reading early in their school careers really don't catch up and obviously that's a much bigger risk if families are not able to advocate for them with the school system, if school systems are stressed, if parents are themselves kind of intimidated by what goes on in school. So Reach Out and Read, which started way back as that cute little baby, as that single program in a single hospital, has grown with a great deal of both public and private support. We're now serving, this is slightly out of date, more than four million children around the country, which is by no means all the children growing up in poverty in this country, but it's a chunk of them. Um, and we're distributing more than six and a half million books a year. We've got 12,000 medical providers working at more than 5,000 program sites in all 50 states. We've worked in particular with military families, with Spanish-speaking families, with American Indian, Alaska Native families. We've had an initiative for children with disabilities. We've worked with international, here's our military, um, we've worked with some international programs. Um, and in every place that we've worked in every country, the idea has been to use the medical infrastructure as a universal 
wonderful platform to reach parents when children are in the early years. It's an infrastructure that exists. We don't have to build it. And there's this context of advice about health and development. And most of all, to finish back where I started, there are these ongoing relationships these really essential, strong primary care relationships where you are already discussing these powerful, important subjects and which you can use to deliver this message. Um, so it's been a program that's been about working with doctors, with family medicine, with the Academy of Pediatrics, making sure we get CME credit for nurse practitioners, family physicians, and pediatricians. Early language and literacy skills are directly related to kindergarten readiness to third grade reading proficiency. We know that predicts graduation from high school and a great deal that has to do with success in life. But we also know that when you look at the child and the parent reading together in the early years, you see the seeds of that school readiness and that language and literacy. But you also see so much more that has to do with the development of the early brain, the relationships that foster that early brain development, and the power of the parent to help the child grow and learn. So I, if, you, if you were in my waiting room and you saw those children coming out of our admittedly sometimes nightmarish elevators and flopping on the blue mats, if you were still waiting there, you would see the children going back at the end of the visits, and you would see them with their books. And you would see them coming out of the clinic, and they're all holding books, and the toddlers are clutching their books, and sometimes the book is sort of on top of the stroller. And the books, you could really see the books going back out of the clinic, onto the subways, onto the buses, out all over the city. And you, I mean, you can think of these little bright spots of color going out all over the map of the community, all over the map of the city, going directly into the homes and the bedrooms and the bedtime routines of all of those children. And I mean, I've been doing this for a long time, but I have to say, I really think it, it makes the map much brighter. So thank you very, very much. Thank you, Dr. Klaus. We now can add any 30-second named lectureship to your CV <laughs> into 31 previous ones, including, those of you in the room will be interested to know, in 2008, the Saul Blattman Memorial Lecture at Beth Israel Medical Center. Uh, Dr. Blattman was the founder of our department oh, in, great. in the early 70s. So, um, so hopefully it won't be 20 years again. For what you, you gave commencement address at Dartmouth Medical School 20 years ago. Hopefully it won't be another 20 years before you return. Dr. Levin. Thank you for that great lecture. Uh, one question about language barriers. How, how do you deal with the issues that the, the materials you have available and parents who don't speak English? Well, so it's a, it's a good and complicated question. And just don't let me go on too long. But we have gone to great lengths to have bilingual books available and bilingual parent materials in as many languages as possible. The only language in which there's actually a fair number of books published in this country has generally been Spanish, although that's changed a little with the technology of publishing books. It's become a little easier to offer books in multiple languages and kind of print them on demand. But what's available is much more limited. Parents seem to really love bilingual books. Um, 
we try to use them, we try to have them available. We, you know, you sometimes feel like you've just accomplished a miracle when you can actually pull out a bilingual Cambodian English book. I mean, sometimes, if you're, if you're lucky. On the other hand, if you go to the cabinet and there's a lovely Cambodian English book and the family speaks Bengali, it's, you know, it's, it's less of a miracle. And it's, it's, it's to say for our clinic population, it's, it's regular, we, we regularly have to readjust because, and, and there are families speaking many languages where we just don't have books. So a couple of things I'd say, we do some, we have some word, wordless books, vocabulary books, where you sort of say, just look at the pictures and tell a story. There are certain categories of books where even if the parent can't read the word on the page, for example, counting books, one, uh, one banana, um, you know, two trees, three puppies, most parents can sort of tell that story. You can encourage it. Um, on the other hand, I will never forget at the clinic where we worked, having a, a Vietnamese-speaking mother tell me that she was worried because her baby wasn't talking, she was very ashamed of her English, which was heavily accented, and she told me that she was not deliberately not talking to the baby. She wanted the baby to learn English. She wanted the baby to succeed in school, and she had written out painstakingly a schedule of educational TV programs so that the baby would hear unaccented English on educational stations. I mean, she meant well. She didn't, you know, she wanted it. So, so part of the message has to be not just that you want to read to the baby and read, but that you want to do it in the language where you're comfortable. You want, to, you want the child to hear language and speech and complicated syntax, and that's the important thing. Babies who grow up hearing complicated syntax and lots of vocabulary in any language are going to have much less trouble making the transition in preschool. So it's not just having the books. It's, it's actually, I would say something that I, I, I hope we take on a little more as a, as a profession. I mean, if, if any of you have been asked in, in clinical settings, so what's the best age for him to be, start a play group? Most of us kind of wing it. On, in terms of giving advice to bilingual families. If you talk to, say, medical students and residents, many of whom grew up bilingual, they're giving whatever, they're telling parents to do whatever was done with them. Um, so I think it would actually be a, a good question to have a little, a little bit more consensus and guidance on how you help those families with their kids. Dr. Behar is a resident. Come on in. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Um, so I, I was just going to ask a question. So um, there's something very special about holding a book, feeling a book, spelling the pages of a book. But I feel like more and more like stuff that I've read has been on a screen. So just wondering if there's any information on whether you could respond just as well if it's coming off the screen versus that's actually, I think, being studied now um, in a number of different contexts because, I mean, especially with the older children, the screens offer all kinds of possibilities in the sense that there's a, there are a lot of books out there which you can have and look at. The anxiety about the screens is this. The anxiety about the screens is kind of, it's a kind of a Matthew effect anxiety. That is to say, the children who are already getting read to and already getting all kinds of stimulation and education from their parents, those children, they're going to have wonderful e-books and their parents are going to look at them with them and it's going to be one more fun activity in an already rich life. I think there's a lot of concern that because the screens are so effective with younger children, they may get 
the screen instead of the parent. So it's not just, it's not a question of whether the book on the screen is, you know, as good. It's a question of whether the book on the screen gets so good that instead of the parent looking at the picture and telling you that a duck says quack and you look up at the parent and you look back at the duck, maybe the screen's just, screen's just going to quack and the parent's going to be doing something else. So I think that's the anxiety. Um, and then the other issue is the, tact the handling, the tactile thing. The fact that if you look at a baby with a board book, you know, putting it in his mouth and manipulating it, there's a, a, a set of manipulation skills. I think the answer to that is going to be increasingly both because as parents themselves are accustomed to certain kinds of activities around the screen, they're going to, there's, there are going to be ways to do it and do it well with children. I think the question is, can we make sure that uh, the books are still a way of making sure that the parent is in there, especially when the child is young, because the parent has to be there to say quack. But um, the, the answer is, I think, that we're studying it, and people are looking at all kinds of possible ways to do it, and that, you know, as in everything else with technology, uh, our children, our students, and then our children will, will, will teach us. Right, and we'll sort of figure out how to do it. Dr. Nana, question. So we talk about in-hospital visits being um, opportunities to capture some of the things that we try to do in primary care, so we'll do vaccines, and I'm wondering if there's any move towards having every kid leave their inpatient hospitalization with a book. And there are there there are a number actually there are there are a bunch of hospitals that are trying to do that partly because um, hospitals have uh, there. Are, Often hospitals have wonderful volunteer groups that want to do something. People who want to do book drives and want to sort the books, want to stock book carts. And so whether you do, whether this is a way that you can actually offer beyond infancy to older children, but if you're going to do this for older children, you have to have a lot of books so they can choose. You can't, you can't sort of say, oh, let's see, you're a nine-year-old, you'll like this, right? You, you have to say, what have you? What are you interested? In? What have you read? We do. We do this at Bellevue because we, we get a lot of book donations, and actually we had a, a tragedy um, that you may have heard of out Superstorm Sandy. Um, a couple of years ago, and the basement at Bellevue flooded. In fact, not just the basement. Um, Bellevue flooded, shut down, lost all of its electricity. We lost a whole year's worth of books because um, the room flooded, and it was a disaster. But there was a little TV show about it with some footage of our families, and we people started donating books, and they haven't stopped. So we every every we have we have a huge people are really nice, and what a lot of them have is those books for older children, and we get them both both new and gently used and we, we do send everyone home. Everyone goes home from the clinic with a book. Everyone goes home from inpatient with a book. So, so um, <laughs> can I just give a shout out to our reach out and reach out? Oh, please do, please do. Sorry. As Dr. Klaas said, I trained at Boston City many years ago with Dr. Klaas, and it's been part of my training since I was a resident. So reach out and read is something that I'm incredibly passionate about. And I want to give a shout out to Darcy, who's sitting right behind me. She is our administrative person who orders the books, stocks our bookshelves, makes a literary, literary rich uh, waiting room at Molly's place. Um, she does this little bit with Kathy Stalker, as well as Wendy Murphy, who's our grant writer. Um, this is, again, as Dr. Klaas was saying, this is a completely grant-funded, supportive project. We are all volunteers doing our job. So if anybody wants to donate, please let us know. Um, we also have a bookshelf for gently used books for kids who are coming in for sick visits and older kids, too, so teenagers who are coming in or school-age kids. 
that the Reach Out and Read program doesn't provide books for. Um, we have a bookshelf, so if anybody's doing any spring cleaning in the next month, we'd love to have any gently used books. And again, so just a thank you to our team for being really has made the program an incredible success here as well. And so Dr. Flash will be spending time with the residents, the house staff at noon, and some community agencies. Um, and as a teaser, uh, we still have room, right, John, at the yes, 25th we do. Annual Dartmouth Pediatric Conference this weekend in Washington. Dr. Class will be continuing to teach about Reach Out and Read, Toxic Stress, and a bit about the power of writing as advocacy. So uh, thanks again, Perry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.